Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Penchassi. My guest today is Nicole Rudolph, the author of At Home in Post-War France, Modern Mass Housing and the Right to Comfort. And the book was published by Bergen Books in and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Penchassi. My guest today is Nicole Rudolph, the author of At Home in Post-War France, Modern Mass Housing and the Right to Comfort. And the book was published by Bergen Books in 2015. Hi there, Nicole. Hi, Roxanne. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks for having me on the show. It's a wonderful show that you do. Could you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to work on France? Sure. Uh, so I'm currently a, a professor at Adelphi University, and I teach in both the history department and the languages department. I have to credit my elementary school in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, <laughs> for making every single fourth grader take French. <laughs> we didn't have a choice. There was no, everyone just took French. And by the time I had finished high school, I had a pretty good familiarity and in-depth proficiency speaking French. Mm -hmm. So it's been a kind of constant in my education and in my intellectual life for a long time. I went to university thinking I would become a history major and just maybe keep doing French as a language on the side. Mm -hmm. And at some point had the fairly obvious but still time consuming for me epiphany <laughs> that uh, I could marry the French bit with the history bit and start looking at France as an object of study instead of just a source of interesting things that are foreign. And how did you come to the subject of this book in particular, Nicole? Uh, it's a great question because I had started out thinking my, of myself at least as a historian of women's lives. Mm -hmm. And so I have always had an interest in the quotidien and everyday life. And when I was in graduate school, we were reading about Les Trente Glorieuses. Mm -hmm. And as part of our study of the period, we looked at Jean Forastier's book of the same name, Les Trente Glorieuses, The Thirty Glorious Years. And we looked at other works like Reuse the Fourth Republic, his history of the Fourth Republic in France. And a lot of those works emphasized the period of rapid transformation and rapid expansion of the economy, mass consumerism, and how by 1975, kind of poof, France had been modernized. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I became curious about was uh, the question of not so much what happened, but how did it feel? Mm -hmm. How did it feel to live through a period of rapid transformation and new products, new music, new phenomena that were changing everyday life so quickly. And I kind of uh, became interested in where that transformation could be felt, mm -hmm. given that housing was something that was on everyone's radar screens 
in the 50s and 60s, whether it was the Soviet Union, Great Britain, the United States, Canada, all through kind of industrializing nations, there was intention given to the home. And so I thought, well, this, this could be an interesting place to look at for traces of the transformation and what people thought was happening as it was happening, as it was taking place. So as you say, Nicole, your the book is focused on this period of the Trente Glorieuses or 30 Glorious Years, so from 1945 to 1975. In the title of the book, you use the term post-war. What does the term post-war mean for you beyond the chronological after 1945? Partially what I'm, I'm going for in the post-war France was the fact that the war stayed with the French for quite a long time. Uh, whether you look at Things like food scarcity or uh, a lack of building materials or the notion that France had to be literally built, but also rebuilt politically, economically, socially. Uh, So the use of the war as a catalyst for change and as a Um, driving force behind the notion of why change was needed, Mm -hmm. I think gets to this notion that France had to become a new France, not only because the war had produced a situation in which one had to rebuild from the ground up, but also the particularities of the political ramifications and the social ramifications from the war. Uh, I talk a little bit in the book about how uh, the notion of decline and backwardness coupled with uh, France having to kind of overcome the, the, the shame of collaboration with the Nazi regime. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, post-war then speaks to all of these efforts by the French to create a new path for the future. Post-war is... is a conceptual adjective mm-hmm. in, that, in that sense. So, Nicole, the book is called At Home in Postwar France. And I guess before we go any further, I want to ask, what's the home that we're talking about in concrete terms? What are the homes that we're talking about? Are we talking about, is this a book about buildings? Is it a book about houses? Um, is it a book about apartments? Is it also a book about the idea of home? It, it, yes, <laughs> so all of those. And I love, I love the idea of the concrete form of home because, uh, in France, of course, it does largely get built in concrete, in reinforced concrete. Mm-hmm. I do use the word home very specifically, even though that word doesn't really exist in French. Uh, a lot of times the French will use words like logement, lodging or housing or appartement, apartment, which is very specific, um, habitat uh, for the habitat of mm-hmm. the home. And sometimes they even use the borrowing of the English word home, um, le home, for example. But specifically, the object of study in the book is the social housing, the modern mass home. Uh, as it comes out in the in the introduction to the book, I, I set the stage for talking about the home by noting that France, like many other European nations, was facing a severe housing crisis after uh, the war. And there was 
quite literally no place for people to live. Um, one in every 20 buildings had been uh, had been destroyed and one out of every five had been damaged. And France needed to not only rebuild housing, but build housing because of the particularities of rent controls put into place after World War One, France really lagged behind other European nations, especially Germany and Great Britain, in terms of building new housing stock even prior to World War II. So in short, many individuals and families were in search of a home. And in order to try to resolve the housing crisis, the French had to dedicate themselves to building new spaces for people to live. And so much of the book is about the question that the French asked themselves, what are we going to build? What is it going to look like? And why? What forms should it take? What forms do these homes need to take? So, Nicole, you've mentioned the um, specific experience of France during the Second World War and also some of the things that perhaps distinguish France from other places, either within Europe or beyond Europe, uh, in terms of this problem of modern mass housing. But we know that that's a set of there, there are a set of concerns that other national contexts are dealing with. So is there more to say about what makes the issues that you explore in this book distinctively French, mm-hmm. uh, specific to this national context? Sure. First of all, as I just mentioned, France is particularly interested at this point in producing modernity all across the nation. Uh, Gabrielle Gabrielle Hecht's book on the radiance of France talks about this in the context of nuclear energy. Mm -hmm. And it's a similar initiative in the realm of housing, uh, showing French grandeur, for example, and giving the world the example of an an art of living, an art d'habité. There's a drive to kind of pick oneself up after the quick defeat by Nazi Germany, after the occupation, after collaboration, and say, you know, for all intents and purposes, that was a blip, and and this is what France really is. Um, and other nations weren't compromised in, in exactly that same way. The second part to that is the ways in which the housing itself was designed and constructed are particularly French because they follow vectors that you don't really find in other national contexts. In Great Britain, housing is largely driven uh, via the municipality and mm-hmm. council flats. Um, in other areas like the U.S., American-style suburban tract housing was driven by private developers, albeit with subsidies and aid from the federal government. In France, everything from the funding to design competitions was driven from above. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was state competitions held by the housing ministry. Uh, Decisions about building permits were done at the state level. Um, And it, it really kind of falls into place with what we know about a centralized France, a Jacobin state that's driving change from above. In the introduction to the book, Nicole, you describe the project as one that looks at the diffusion, mediation, and reception of ideas about modern dwellings. So I want to ask you about the different historical actors 
uh, that you work with in the book and what some of the different kinds of sources are that you're using to access uh, the diffusion, mediation, and reception of these ideas? Well, this is a great question for a historian because we love to talk about our sources. <laughs> so groups of actors that, that I started out with um, include the functionaries and planners at the National Housing Ministry. Mm-hmm. They also include uh, different architects, urban planners, and engineers. And to get at what the debates are in architecture during this time period, I largely use their trade press um, magazines like Architecture, uh, uh, Francaise, Architecture Francaise, French Architecture, Architecture d'aujourd'hui, Today's Architecture. These are modernist uh, architecture magazines where people are publishing their proposals, or debating uh, regulations that are being formulated by the housing ministry that affect what can be built. Um, I also look at sites like the uh, Salon des Emménagers, um, which is kind of like the Daily Mail's Ideal Home Exhibition. And this was a, a site of a yearly exhibition for all things relating to the home, furniture, model homes, new appliances, paint, aluminum siding, you name it. Um, and it drew millions of visitors. And associated with this exhibition, there was also um, a magazine called Almenager, the Household Arts. Mm-hmm. And so in the pages of these uh, discursive sources, you can see ideas being formulated about what modern new ideal homes are supposed to look like and what they're supposed to deliver. And then on the mediation side, you get everything from letters to the housing ministry from folks looking for homes, from folks who have seen uh, the housing ministry's own exhibitions that were traveling or that were at certain Parisian sites. And you also get um, surveys, things from the studies being done on by the national demographers on who has what in their homes, um, what are they looking to purchase uh, by 1958, how many homes own a washing machine. And so trying to get at some uh, ideas about not only what form should house, housing take, but also what are people doing when they're moving into these spaces? Are they creating modern homes and inhabiting them in the ways that the architects and planners are projecting that they will once they get there? Let's talk about this word modern, um, modern mm-hmm. modernity, modernization. And I don't expect you to resolve <laughs> the problems in this conversation or in the book. Uh, but how were people using that term? Uh, in the period, uh, the people that you're looking at in the book, and how are you mm-hmm. dealing with that thorny <laughs> thicket of modernity, modernism, modernization? I mean, those are distinct terms, but all sort of coming back to the modern at, at, at their core. What can you tell us about how you work with those ideas as a, as a historian and as an author? Great question. Uh, I, as you say, I don't think I've completely resolved that, uh, but 
when when my actors say it, I know that for the most part, the first connotation is always new, right? And new then is forward-looking, not traditional, not maintaining anything from the past. It also has connotations of efficiency, rationalization uh, for these actors that what what is trying to be delivered via a modern home has to do with something that is different and better than anything that had come before. And that includes for these actors even more bourgeois apartments. They're trying to make the case that a modern home can be smaller and can have fewer frills, but can actually bring the inhabitants much more satisfaction Mm. because it's been thoughtfully planned out. It saves energy. It saves time. It produces a relationship to the outside Mm -hmm. uh, that is restorative. And so there's, there's lots that gets packed in to the word modern for the actors. On my end, as trying not to kind of just repeat that term uh, as a, a just simple descriptor, I've tried to, when referring to projects of modernization, just use that term modernizing project. Mm-hmm. I am hopeful that the ING, the modernizing, gets to the intentions of the actors, but also acknowledges that any kind of full actualization of modernity is a state that is not perfectly reached. By the same token, I think that the modernizing gets to the efforts of actors who are working from a top-down perspective, but also to what inhabitants are looking for. To, to, To a large extent, they buy the promises of the tastemakers and the architects and the planners that if they will invest in modern housing, they will have a better, happier life. And so for a, a large part of this um, story, the, the French are, are, how should we say, cautiously optimistic about mm-hmm. this. You know, okay, we're, we're, we're very hopeful that you are going to be bringing us homes that will make our lives easier and better. And so the the modernizing bit of that also acknowledges some participation by the inhabitants themselves. So I want to zoom out a little bit, Nicole, to talk about mm-hmm. the sort of arc of the book and maybe just move through some of the specific cases and uh, periods that you look at. So in the first chapter of the book, you're focused on the Ministry of Reconstruction and Urbanism. Could you give us a brief overview of the origins and significance of this ministry and what experiments the state engaged in with respect to housing through this ministry in this period? Sure. The Ministry of Reconstruction and Urbanism did not exist before liberation, before the end of World War II. Uh, because there was no need to reconstruct. Um, and so there had been some efforts in the realms of housing, particularly social housing or public housing, that were under the aegis of the health ministry. 
for public health reasons. And given the extent of wartime disruption, the new provisional government decided that it would create this new ministry because Reconstruction had to proceed in a planned, rational, organized fashion. They were very worried that the Reconstruction would be what they call à l'identique, that everybody in his or her own town would just kind of get some bricks, get some cement, get some stone and just put back what was there. Mm. And there, there was a real determination to, you know, use what uh, was called the, the monstrous opportunity, the silver lining of the war to say, you know, we have a kind of a tabula rasa here and mm-hmm. let's take advantage of it to rebuild something that is bigger, better and makes more sense uh, for France. Um, the ministry is not really able to do much new construction in the first few years of its existence because most of the resources, not only of materials, steel, uh, bricks, but also of manpower are going to rebuilding the productive capacity of the nation. Mm-hmm. Um, so factories and, and uh, other heavy industry. But that being said, the ministry does what it can to uh, apply itself to this question of we need to build, we need to rebuild, we need to find homes um, for the rebirth of France. One of the things that they're very concerned about is regeneration of the population. Uh, De Gaulle had called for 12 million beautiful babies and mm-hmm. How are they going to possibly be made if everyone is living with his or her mother-in-law? Um, so there's an at- at- attention to the pronatalist policy that is behind some of these questions of, of what's going to be built. But there's not a real certainty about the best way to move forward. Mm-hmm. So they start to put together some, some plans to see what other nations are doing, for example. And in uh, the first chapter, I talk about one of those uh, plans is a, is a site called the an experimental city, mm-hmm. um, uh, at, and it's at Noisy-le-Sec. And um, they actually went out and purchased from from different nations um, prefabricated homes that they wanted to put real French families into. Mm-hmm. And see how folks would react to them and how the construction would hold up. Um, was it easy for French workmen to build? Uh, could it stand up to the elements? Did people like the design of the homes themselves? And so in the experimental city, they assembled a, a, a neighborhood, Ex Nihilo, and invited families who had been displaced by an allied bomb raid uh, to move into these homes and and just see, you know, is there something that's manifestly better about a um, Swedish prefabricated house than a French one or a British one? What kinds of materials were being used? Um, and it was it was really fascinating mm-hmm. uh, to, to go into those archives because 
a, a lot of the uh, underlying expectations of what a home is supposed to do were laid bare. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a, a celebrated engineer, Jean Prouvé, and Jean Prouvé had de- designed a prefabricated home, and he had done so along modernist lines uh, that invoked Le Corbusier's five points of a new architecture, including an an open plan. Um, And he used a lot of avant-garde for the time, materials, glass, steel, Mm -hmm. concrete. And when the French officials went to his home and they looked at it, they said, you know, this is really more appropriate for, say, a daycare space than for a family home. And when they say things like that, you you get a real appreciation for what the normative expectations are in housing. Uh, American homes were disliked because when you opened the door, you were right in the living area um, and there was no foyer. There was no intersectional space between public and private. Mm -hmm. And that really put off some of the families um, that were living there. So they, they... tried the this experimental city um to to see if any other nation had kind of solved this problem in ways that they could expeditiously make use of another vector for innovation uh that came about from the housing ministry was a series of competitions that they held and the competitions were really designed to look again at this question of mass construction, rapid industrialization. Um, the, the home construction was pretty artisanal and therefore took a long time. And the housing ministry was very interested in mobilizing innovative construction techniques to build as quickly as possible. And so they hold a series of competitions where they're not set on the uh, form of the housing in terms of detached single-family homes versus uh, small or low-density apartment complexes versus higher-density complexes. They are uh, ecumenical at this point in uh, being open to different kinds of of forms for housing. But the the ministry finds itself... uh, uh, frustrated because they they hold these competitions and none of the projects really get to the innovation that they're seeking. Um, so at the same time that they are looking to build with not very many resources, they're finding themselves unable to commit to any projects because none of them are, are satisfying for folks to live in, nor are they able to really uh, build as quickly and as cheaply as they need to build. In the second chapter of the book, Nicole, you, uh, well, you focus on modernist architects and this idea of the art of living and the notion of designing for a classless society. So mm-hmm. uh, I wanted to ask you about who these modernist architects are, what is the relationship between these post-war designers and architects and maybe some earlier projects that exist in France and elsewhere. And how does class play a role in the designs that emerge in this period at the center of this notion of the art of living? 
So one of the things that I came across when I began to study this period and to study the architecture of the home was a conception that the radical or avant-garde modernist architects like Le Corbusier, who didn't have a chance to build much in the interwar period, really got the opportunity to put all of their ideas into action in the post-war period because of the need for reconstruction and construction. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, that is true. And many of the movers and shakers behind the orthodoxy of the modern mass home were modernist architects. But in their formal projections for the home, um, things that we see in what is one of the quintessential modern mass homes of the post-war period, which is Corbusier's Unité d'Habitation in Marseille. It's an iconic building. Uh, we see a real reluctance on the part of the French to embrace a, a kind of full modernist approach to housing, which include things like I just mentioned, like the open plan, for example, which includes a, a reliance on uh, as the time goes by on technology to kind of liberate the floor plan so that more innovative things can be done. And what the modernists were going for, of course, in the interwar period was an attempt to, to displace the Ecole de Beaux-Arts reliance on kind of monumental architecture or architecture whose success depends heavily on its beautiful facade um, or or kind of uh, bourgeois apartments that uh, reflect the the status of the owner by the multiplication of specialized rooms like your billiards room and your library and it, feeling that the sign of the times is that borders between classes are becoming more fluid, uh, that there is an increasing democratization, and, and that there's a certain lack of justice for having poorer families live in hovels or in shacks while wealthier families have more space than they know what to do with. So in this interwar period, there's a, there's a notion that um, the world has changed and that architecture should begin to reflect those changes by, as I said earlier, putting forth uh, an architecture that whose success depends on its function. At the same time, however, you have public housing, social housing, that's being developed and, and built in France um, for the Habitation à Bon Marché, which is a public housing program and which has become the Habitation à Loyer Modéré, the HLM or HLM housing mm-hmm. that we know today. And when I went to look at the blueprints for those spaces, for the the HBM spaces, I started to see that there was an acceptance of the idea that people from different classes dwelt differently and should dwell 
differently. And that was designed into the spaces by things like uh, having a basic HLM, which had few right angle corners, for example, so dust couldn't gather so that mm. the, the space would be as hygienic as possible, mm-hmm. um, all the way up to another form of, of social housing that was really for middle class families. And there was a separate entrance for your day made or for your deliveries. And uh, as an American who had always associated public housing with a lower income bracket, I was surprised to see public housing or social housing that went all the way up to a middle class family with help. Mm-hmm. So, so in the in the interwar period, you have these these competing uh, visions where the authorities who are building social housing, public housing acknowledge that if you're in a working class family, you like to have one central space with satellite bedrooms around it because the stove is your heat source and you're in there most of the day versus um, a upper middle class family who might have um, a parlor with a piano in it for receiving. And they're building those spaces um, according to the uh, hierarchy of dwelling practices. You also have the modernist architects who are resisting this class hierarchy. So when we get to the post-war period, and there's a kind of moment where, where the public authorities are saying, what should we do now? Um, it's really the, the moment for the modernist architects who have been the first to be experimenting with mass construction and industrialized forms of construction in order to produce spaces that are more friendly to working class families um, and that can offer working class families a higher standard of living. And so they really get an opportunity to put their ideas into play. That said, there's, there's, if you will, breaks on their ideas. They can't fully operationalize all of the modernist precepts because when push comes to shove, they find themselves really designing for what we might call average middle-class family. And you see that when you, when you start looking at the blueprints, and this is where I wish we had, you know, the opportunity for PowerPoint somehow in the, <laughs> in the um, verbal form of all this, because when you look at the blueprints, um, you can see that these same modernist architects who are interested in in shaking up ways of inhabiting space are encouraged to go for not i wouldn't say that it's not the lowest common denominator it's the the medium common denominator right. a, a common denominator um which implies that if you are a middle class family you're no longer going to have uh, a parlor that's separate from your dining room. That's going to be all in one space because mass construction determines that all of the apartments in a building will have to be the same in order to get it up quickly and cheaply. On the flip side, if you're a working class family, you're now living in a space that's uh, more specialized than what you're used to. And 
So in part, the idea is to get all the people, everyone from all of the classes living differently. Mm -hmm. And yet that living differently is really predicated on a set of middle class norms about what it is to dwell. I want to come back, Nicole, to this yearly salon, uh, des mm-hmm. Ménagers, that is the focus of the third chapter of the book. And I guess to ask you, you, know, you talk about the big role that the salon plays in diffusing ideas about design and norms as well, and this idea of a domestic ideal. What does this chapter and the book as a whole tell us about this domestic ideal and specifically about women and gender roles um, in and beyond the home in this period. Great. So the salon is interesting to me because it's a site where women are explicitly named and mm-hmm. thought about and solicited and, and seduced. And it's it's really a site where you can see that women are considered to be key actors in modernizing projects such as this. So one of the paradoxes about the Salon des Armes is that much of the discourse is about making women's lives easier. Mm-hmm. But in order to do that, women have to be encouraged to leave everything that they know about homemaking behind mm-hmm. and to learn new and modern ways of housekeeping. And to some extent, this is a carryover from the interwar years when notions of, say, scientific management of the home had begun to be promulgated, um, that, that, uh, women who, um, maybe had been tempted to work outside the home were to be relieved to know that their management of the home was in itself a vocation that they were the executive of all things household. But there's also a little bit more to it than that in the, in the post-war period because they know that women are going to be moving in to these new mass homes and they're going to be different than what they have experienced before and they're going to have to adhere to new standards Some of these standards have to do with actual housekeeping. Um, If you read through the uh, literature of this time, for example, you'll see a lot of, uh, say, myth-busting about refrigerators. The women tended to buy refrigerators that were actually too small for their needs because they didn't necessarily appreciate what the refrigerator would do for revolutionizing their food shopping, for example. And so if they were still paying for the smaller one on credit and realized that they needed a bigger one, um, that was going to be a problem later rather than sooner that people at the Salon des Armenegers were trying to help them avoid. In the second part of the book, Nicole, you begin with this housing crisis of the early 1950s. So can you tell us about what happened uh, to cause a housing crisis and how the state and some of these other actors that you're looking at the book responded to that crisis? To some extent, the housing crisis had begun before the war, um, but the slowness of the reconstruction meant that there still were a lot of families on waiting lists for housing. And the 
increasing numbers of rural families or, or even individuals moving to cities in search of work continued to put pressure, particularly in, in cities and their surrounding areas on the, uh, limited housing stock. Mm -hmm. We also see that, you know, even by 1954, the, the statistic is, is astonishing. It's 96% of the housing stock predated 1949. Wow. O- over half of it dated before 1915. So there's a great need there for renovating the existing housing as well as getting people out of overcrowded housing. Um, some things happened in the French media that, that really put pressure on uh, the public authorities. One thing I would note is that the French, unlike inhabitants of other nations, um, never really put the housing question on the agenda of their political parties. Um, so there's not a lot of po- political pressure on the government to build more, even though they're very cognizant of the housing crisis. But by 1953, we see that people are actually dying from exposure to the cold. They are living in old buses. They are living in provisional wooden barracks left from that were built after bombing raids. And in January of 1954, um, a baby dies from exposure to the freezing temperatures. It was a really, really cold winter. And we get the Catholic activist, the uh, Abbe Pierre, who takes to the radio and rallies the French to the aid of the homeless, calling for immediate donations of blankets, tents. They, he begins uh, a, a campaign with the laundry detergent Purcell, um, so that when people send in box tops, Purcell will donate to Abbe Pierre. He starts his own housing development program mm-hmm. and efforts like this really embarrass the French government who had previously not voted budget credits for construction. Um, and so it, it, it comes to be mediatized in a way that the government realizes that they really have to step up their efforts to address the housing crisis. Um, in about the same time, we have the uh, housing ministry put into place uh, something called the Courant Plan, which is a, an attempt to uh, streamline housing design and construction to find places to build by allowing the government to expropriate territory using eminent domain and to finance construction by using uh, monies collected from businesses with 10 or more employees. And so they suddenly have funding, they have some space, and they have a way of building more quickly. And this is something that not only accelerates, of course, construction, but also um, kind of fixes or, or encourages the government to commit to a single standard of an apartment. And this is what we call a... Um, uh, four P for four PS or four rooms. Mm-hmm. 
And these four P are in, in what they call logicals, which is logement économique and familial. It's, it's important that it's, it's family homes. Um, and what these plans do is they get a bunch of architects, they get some common designs, and then they offer builders bonuses if they build according to these designs. So they've suddenly um, kind of streamlined the process by eliminating the need to consult with an architect each and every time you build something new. We now have kind of a handbook of plans. And this is where the beginning of the uh, Grand Ensemble, that high-density, high-rise apartment complex, comes into effect because there are now mass construction techniques that can start building these high-rise buildings all according to the same apartment plan. And that allows for the government to really house people more quickly, but they do so in ways that, you know, everybody, everyone's apartment is the same apartment with the same living room, dining room area, the same two bedrooms, the same placement of the bathroom. Um, and this is where these apartment complexes start to get the uh, reputation for being collectivist, uh, mm-hmm. for anonymous, for repetition, dull, um, because they're, they're a new housing form and not everyone likes them. So we've talked a lot, Nicole, about the sort of top-down efforts and planning and then the design and architects and, um, you know, the ways that some of these norms are, are disseminated through things like the Salon. How does the book deal with how people responded to these living units, how French society more broadly comments or reacts to some of the changes in housing that you are tracking in the book? It's interesting because the the response is always twofold in a sense. The response is always, thank goodness something is being built um, and how horrible it looks. (laughs) Um, So there's gratitude for the new spaces at the same time as particularly elites are criticizing the very idea of putting hundreds of families in a giant rectangular apartment building. Mm-hmm. The way that it kind of filters down when, and what I've tried to do in the book is to balance out some of those objections in particularly in the press, but in other areas as well with their responses by either architects who are defending the spaces. One of the, the famous defenses of the Grand Ensemble is, is by an architect who said, well, it's just like different bottles of wine in the same wine rack. It was a very French uh, characterization of the, the idea that you can retain your individuality. Um, it's just that the, the rack is the same for every different bottle. At the same time, there are, and this is, I've been very fortunate in this sense, there are some great uh, oral histories that different localities especially have produced as some of these uh, first-generation Grand Ensembles have been uh, slated for demolition. And there are lots of interviews with the first generations of families to move into the spaces. So I've tried to kind of comb through uh, contemporary 
reactions of uh, inhabitants that you find in the archives or in the mass press, along with some of these recollections of first-generation inhabitants, which are, you know, problematic in their own ways as sources, um, but help us to, to get a sense of what people liked and what people didn't like. And in the fifth chapter, I try to also get at, at residents in impressions of the spaces, not only through kind of a, a first person or, or um, first degree uh, recounting of, of those impressions, but also through the, the works of the urban sociologists. Um, and urban sociology was an emergent discipline for the time. And the housing ministry sponsors studies by sociologists to go into the, the new Grand Ensemble because it, it really is the first time that residents from all different class backgrounds have been housed in similar housing. And so this is understood correctly to be a massive social experiment. And so they commission these uh, sociologists to go in and, and tell them how they're doing. Uh, for all intents and purposes. Now, they're a little bit taken aback because the urban sociologists say, actually, you're not doing all that well. Um, there are lots of problems. And one of the, the responses for the, from the urban sociologists is that, in fact, um, you need to put class back in. You, you need mm-hmm. to acknowledge that, that people from different classes might want to inhabit space differently and you have to create floor plans and apartment designs that acknowledge that and permit that. So I want to ask you, Nicole, about something that runs throughout the book and then, you know, plays more of a central role in in some of the specific chapters, but this sort of tension between the functionalist uh, dimension of these things that need to address crises to house people, to give them shelter, to make sure they live in clean spaces that are hygienic and uh, in which the business of making families and returning and resting from work uh, happens. And then the sort of spectrum from there through uh, comfort, basic minimal comforts, but then also the comforts of leisure, all the way to sort of happiness. And then, you know, even beauty and aesthetic ideals. And I'm, you know, I'm sitting here looking at the cover of this book and maybe it's because I have a mid-century aesthetic. But <laughs> it's a really beautiful apartment. It's the cover it? of the book. Um, I, I aspire to such a space myself, I think. <laughs> so how do you deal with that? Very carefully. <laughs> um, I think like many of us, um, once we get to adulthood, if you will, you have to compromise on what you think your life is going to be about and um, the limitations that we encounter. And the French state in some sense also had to do this because um, they really, the, the ambitions that you find in every part of the, the liberation era pacts. Um, written into the preamble of the Constitution, you know, leisure, rest, um, development of the individual, support of the family. Uh, there is a real genuine desire to produce that for families, to take responsibility for the health and welfare and comfort of the French populace. And one of the stories that the book tells is that that story of constraints. Constraints come from the lack of budget, from the lack of manpower, from uh, the lack of land, where land is located. But 
what I see as really one of the achievements of the Fourth and Fifth Republic is that even as they're kind of chipping away at the beautiful dream and the, the picture on the, the front of the of the book on the cover of the book is from Auguste Perret's um, a model apartment um, in Le Havre. And that was built right after the devastation of Le Havre. Um, and it was an, uh, another experiment in housing um, to kind of prepare for this glorious future of French housing. And some of those apartments went to very lucky uh <laughs> victims of bombing raids, but, um, you know, that was the idea. That was the design. That was the, the goal. And even when they have to chip away at that and make smaller spaces with, um, perhaps less amenities, um, there, they make space for a refriger- refrigerator, but they're not going to be able to provide you with that refrigerator. Uh, they, they know that comfort is on the horizon, but at the same time, they never give up on a, technological comfort. The hot water is provided. Central heat is provided. You know, at the beginning of this period, 95% of residents didn't have a toilet, shower, bathtub on the premises. It was on another floor. It was on the first floor. It was outside. Um, There's a real revolution in dwelling that takes place. And it comes from the insistence by the French housing ministry that every space needs to include these things. And so even when that definition of comfort is technological, it does have to do with um, central heating and hot running water. It also speaks to comfort for that generation of inhabitants who no longer have to go out and, and try and find coal. To mm-hmm. heat stoves during the day. And so that comfort is, that technological comfort is almost a placeholder for, uh, the aspiration that if, if we make people's everyday's, everyday lives a little bit easier, they'll be able to achieve a little bit more for themselves, whether it's rest, whether it's their passion for painting watercolors, whether they want to sit on their balconies and just look at the horizon, that's an important part of life. And I think it's something that we we still recognize as, um, if not uniquely French, at least a more European perspective on what it means to live than we certainly see in, in the American context. So the book ends in the early to mid-1970s. What changes how does the story end, I suppose, or what, what, what is the turning point here um, at the end of your chronological uh, spread in the book? So in the late 1960s, we're all familiar with the upheaval of 1968 and May 68. And, and um, at the same time, there's a, there's a vociferous critique of um, the loss of individuality inherent in these big grand ensemble apartment buildings the housing ministry is searching for ways out of that problem, looking at new innovative uh, juxtapositions for apartments or ways of combining apartments that 
seem a little less regimented, a little more personalized. Unfortunately, um, they don't recognize, reckon with the 1973 oil crisis, mm-hmm. um, which provides a, a, a shock to the economy where the French decide to get out of the building game. And when I say the French here, I mean the French state, the, right. the centralized state. Um, and they decide that they are no longer going to build such big apartment complexes. And they pass a law um, ending their construction. Uh, at the same time, they decide that they're going to switch financing from direct investment in construction to things like uh, loans to individuals. So more mortgages being made available, more loans for favorable loans for people to to build or, or to buy in a new suburban development. Um, uh, and so the two of those, the, the backing away from large-scale apartment complexes and the uh, French just trying to divest itself of the responsibility to uh, build on a massive scale, partially because they've achieved their aims. They've, they've built millions of apartments and, and homes uh, by 1975, and there is no such thing as a housing crisis anymore. So the story ends uh, for my book there because there's really no engine mm-hmm. for trying to answer the question of how should we live. They have answered it, and they have built it. There are so many other questions I could ask you, Nicole, <laughs> but I'll just ask you one more. What are you working on now? Thanks. That's a great question. Through this book, I have been reflecting on the question of intention and and resident feedback and the ways in which um, certain directives or certain needs drive design. So I've actually moved a little bit forward in time, uh, which is not great for a historian, but um, currently the um, housing ministry, which is now related to the Ministry for the Environment, is working on the design of eco neighborhoods and public housing. And so I'm looking at those spaces because my, my research has gone into the area of notions of public and private, both within the home and within neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I'm seeing is that when you design in accordance with the climate or imperatives to reduce greenhouse gases, emissions. Some of these designs don't take the research into how people like to dwell into account. And so I'm seeing that that there is the potential for a same kind of disconnect between differing dwelling practices and a desire to meet uh, a, a different imperative. It, in the time that's covered by the book, it's the, the desire to build quickly and cheaply. And now there's a desire to build um, in ways that are not harmful to the environment, which is laudable, but particularly in the public housing context might have some detrimental effects on family life. Well, it sounds like a fascinating new project and Nicole, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today and for for writing at home and post-war friends. Thank you for having me. It's been great. I look forward to your next installment. <laughs>